get this. Um, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and so we're coming off of uh, the season of Advent where there's this anticipation, right, of the coming Lord, the coming Christ. Um, and it's a way to enter into Israel's story of exile, that they are away, that God is away, that they feel like they're away from home. Um, and then there's Christmas, uh, God has come, and there's this idea of this return from exile. And so now we get into this uh, Sermon on the Mount, where we're at the heart of what Jesus is teaching and what Jesus is doing. And so that's sort of the idea, you know, and why are we doing this between Christmas and Lent is to, if we're in the season of waiting for Jesus, now we're in the season of right, right in the thick of, you know, what he's teaching. And um, this Sermon on the Mount gets to the heart um, of things um, that are what his ministry is all about. Um <clears throat> And so one of the things I've been saying week after week, and I think I'm going to do this every single week, is that um, you will never rise to your goals, but you will always fall to your systems. And I think Jesus is giving us a vision for what um, this system can be. Um, And I hate to put it, I don't know, it's not really a system, it's a relationship with God, but um, he is changing the vision of things uh, for his disciples and he's trying to take them a little bit deeper. Um, I think that probably no one really understood or had a vision for exactly what his, you know, the kingdom was going to be. And he is trying to bring them in and uh, teach them about um, the heart of things. And that's what we're getting at here in this section is the heart, the heart of things. Um, <clears throat> so again, this sermon... Jesus' first sermon is set within the context of uh, this return from exile, Israel's return from exile. And uh, that's at the, you know, just before this, we have John the Baptist, his cousin, announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he quotes Isaiah about, you know, leveling the mountains and straightening the roads. And it's this vision that, you know, the king is coming home, the king is coming back. There is this return. And uh, we're going to make the, the pathway straight, that there's this return from exile. And I, I always think it's good to, to sort of pause and, and to think about what that means. You know, exile is this place where you're away, where you're unknown, where it's not home, it's not comfortable, it's not um, everything seems foreign to you. And this idea of, you know, exile is returning home, return to a place where I can be vulnerable, where I can... Um, I, I, I know the people around me. I'm, I'm a part of a community where we share values and we share practices. Um, we share cultural elements together. Um, and so this is, this is part of what Jesus is doing. It's all in this context of returning um, home and, and coming home. Um, he says, you know, in that first section, this idea of blessed are those who mourn. In the beginning of the Beatitudes, you know, the Beatitudes, the beginning of the sermon. And part of that idea is um, Israel is mourning why they were in, in, in exile. Why um, were they sent away? Why were they allowed to, um, why was their home destroyed? And part of it has to do with um, the lack of justice and righteousness in the land and uh, the poor 
and the marginalized not being cared for and God not being worshipped and, and, you know, in a pure way. And, you know, so all these things. And, you know, so one of those uh, Beatitudes is blessed are those who, who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so now we have this, this idea of this return from exile and I believe Jesus is talking about this comfort, this, this sort of uh, what is home going to look like? What is community going to look like? Um, and today, in particular, we look at personal practices, but it's still there's this context of what does our community look like? How do we relate to one another um, in this home? So there's this idea of a joyous sort of return to home where justice and righteousness um, will reign. And... Um, we talked about righteousness last week, and we have plenty of instances of righteousness. And we talked about sinfulness last week, and you know we, we can get into this. We talked about murder. Jesus talked about you know you said uh, you've heard it said, do not murder. But what I'm saying is, do not even be angry with one another. This is what this home looks like. This is what this community looks like. Is that um, in this kingdom of heaven, we we do not. Um, harbor anger towards one another. And he talks about this righteousness, you know, living righteous lives. And I think that sometimes our theology can get in the way of this. Um, sometimes we can get into talking about this high theology where, you know, I'm, I can never be perfect. Uh, Jesus is perfect and his um, righteousness and his, uh, his goodness is sort of imputed on me. And um, in some mystical ways, and and there's that's true in a sense, and there's there's a place for talking about that. Um, but I don't want us to get so high-minded that we miss the the real practical things that Jesus is saying here. Um, one of the examples that Matthew has already given us is Joseph and Mary, where Joseph um, is so devoted to God that when he discovers Mary's pregnant, he's going to go through the proceedings of a divorce, but he doesn't, he's devoted to God, but he's also devoted to her. And so his devotion to people doesn't get in the way of his devotion to God. His devotion to God does not get in the way of his devotion to people. And so when we look at Joseph, who's righteous, uh, we're seeing, you know, something that's very practical, that is lived out. It's not, um, the, the theology doesn't get so high and mighty that we just, uh, you know, we can't do anything because we're imperfect. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Now, I, Jesus knows we're imperfect, and I think that we can live this life out, uh, you know, by his power and the power of his spirit. But at the same time, it's very practical. Uh, he's saying don't harbor anger towards one another. You know, I think of um, when we talk about uh, righteousness, and another, another example beyond Mary uh, and Joseph would be Tamar in the in the Old Testament. Um, she's already been mentioned in Jesus' uh, genealogy. Matthew's already met, brought up her name as well, and that's another story where she uh, marries one of Judah's sons, and uh, her husband dies, and that can be a real um, problem in the ancient world because typically women didn't have the skills to uh, make a living. They're, they're just uh, they're just left to into this destitute sort of poverty. And, and so one of the practices that we see in the Old Testament, which seem a bit strange to us, um, but was a, was a reality in, the old, in those days, was that the, the father would provide another son. You know? So um, 
so there would be uh, this. She would marry, you know, this her husband's her her widowed hus her her husband has passed away. She would marry uh, his brother. Um, and so, if we were living in the ancient world, what would happen is if my brother uh, passed away some for some reason, and uh, I've got my my sister-in-law who's got four kids. She would, I would marry her. I would have two wives, Lisa and my sister-in-law, but this way she's not destitute. And so in the story of Tamar, you know, this happens again with his second husband. He passes away and she's still destitute. And then Judah does not, he's only got one son left and he's a bit fearful about, you know, same thing with him. And so uh, <clears throat> Tamar goes through uh, this process of sort of tricking Judah into providing uh, for her. And um, at the end, Judah acknowledges to Tamar, you acted justly. You were the one that acted righteously in this situation. And so there again, in the book of Matthew, as he mentions uh, Tamar, we get this sense of what does righteousness and justice look like? It's very practical. And um, we see instances of Joseph and Tamar stepping into this. And so the, the reason I mention that is that, you know, what Jesus is calling us to is very real living with one another in community in very practical ways that we cannot harbor anger. We cannot harbor lust. We cannot harbor this sort of vengeful spirit in this community. That as we return home into this community, which is loving and devoted to one another and devoted to God in a place where we can be vulnerable and a place where we can flourish as we were designed to do as humans. It's a place where none of those things, you know, in our heart are harbored. Um, and so it's a, it's a very practical thing that we're reading and we, we get into it uh, again today. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, <clears throat> Jesus looks forward to this, you know, being difficult at times. This is going to disrupt things. It's going to disrupt our personal lives. It's going to disrupt our, um, our community. It's going to disrupt uh, things politically, as we see at the end of his career. And he um, uh, is crucified on the cross. Um, living this way um, will not always be easy. It will draw persecution. He says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. There's this looking ahead that as we live in this community, as we take this seriously, um, it's, it's, it's going to be disruptive. Um, and so there's an expectation. Uh, so last week we talked about the fear and I talked about with, I opened with a, a, an opening story about, you know, with, with my own life of just, you know, this fear of being discovered that I'm a fraud, that inside, you know, I might look good on the outside, but inside, you know, people will realize um, that I really am a, a sinner, and uh, I'm not always uh, the person I am. I, I, I project, and uh, this week is very similar, um, but it sort of flipped uh, the opposite. The idea is that um, I want to project to everyone that I look good, and I'm really concerned about what people uh, think about me. Uh, so last week was uh, look inward regarding your sins, and this week is uh, look on the inward your inward spirit or your heart regarding your religious practice and this display that we put on for people um, and the temptation to do that. Um, I have a quote here uh, from a book. Um, 
This book has been great. It's called uh, The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing by Jonathan Pennington. And there's a, I have a quote here on page 211. Here we go. Jesus warns his would-be disciples that there is a heart issue at stake, not only in what righteousness is, anger, not just murder, lust, not just adultery, but also how one lives in our daily life. Specifically, there is the ever-present temptation to be righteous so that others will see it and think well of the doer. Jesus is not condemning here the public practice of righteous behavior, as if only secret, anonymous acts can be righteous. Rather, he's warning against righteous behavior that has the wrong motive, the heart motive behind it. The praise of others rather than the praise of God. Um, that which is necessary for entering the kingdom of heaven is a matter of internal motivations, not just external actions. And so he turns to this religious practice, the things that we do, and uh, we get into um, this third section on the Sermon on the Mount. Now it's repetitive. He's going to mention uh, almsgiving, don't, you know, giving to the poor, um, prayer, and he's going to mention fasting. So I'm just going to deal. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to go into the first one because it's very repetitive, and you guys can read this uh, on your own and think about it. Um, but we'll start with almsgiving. So this is chapter 6, verse 1. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Now, his statements on prayer after this and his statements on fasting uh, go in a very similar way. So if we break this down a little bit, there's this, you begin with this warning statement. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. Um, so there's this warning, um, he's bringing up this, this idea of admiration and this, uh, loss of reward, um, when we act this way. So almsgiving is, uh, just caring for, uh, the needy, the poor. And in that world, um, this was almost considered this, a, like a compulsory religious activity. Uh, there's no welfare system. There's no government assistance. Um, people relied on donation um, to get along. I mean, the, the, le the, the level of poverty in that part of the world back then uh, was just so high. And so giving people, even out in public, just giving them and, and helping them with their needs um, was a very regular part of uh, their faith. Um, and in Judaism, uh, this was uh, something that you read the Old a lot of Old Testament verses about caring for the poor and taking care of people. And so um, this was something that's, that was very common. And we live in a very different world uh, with our welfare system and government assistance and 
um, you know, all, a whole bunch of different programs that were just not available uh, to people in that world. Um, <clears throat> and so this was part of a cultural norm. This is part of what you would normally do and was sort of expected. And I think because it's a cultural norm, it was normal for people. Um, we, you know, there could develop certain attitudes about not living up to uh, the cultural norms. And, you know, how are you going to uh, do this? How is, are you going to be seen doing this? Are you going to be heard doing this? Are people going to notice that you do this? And so people would make a, you know, a big deal about their uh, giving. And Jesus is basically saying, don't call attention um, to this religious act, you know, and, and, and I think it might be, I think we're going to talk about this later, but what, what would be an equivalent in our day? Uh, it's a much more, everything's religious back then. And in our day, um, I'm wondering what would be the equivalent to that um, in our day. I remember when our kids were young, like super young, still toddlers and in diapers and you know, having this sense of, as a parent, what you're supposed to be doing as a parent and what you're, you know, what you may or may not be doing as a parent. There seemed to be this culture of expectation of um, how you were supposed to parent, what you were supposed to do, um, and kind of a feeling of social pressure uh, to make sure everything looked right. Um, I think with uh, some of the big news items, uh, with racism and the Me Too movement and um, Black Lives Matter, and there's a, there's a lot of uh, online social pressure about what you're you know supposed to do about this. I've seen a lot of churches um, after the the storming of the Capitol and seeing the Jesus Save banners. I've seen a lot of stuff that have popped up on podcasts and online about that's not me, right? That's not us. Church is saying that whatever you saw there is not us. And um, I wonder if, you know, there's this social pressure to say that, you know, because what I saw at the Capitol was a lot of white men with Jesus signs. Okay, so now I'm, I'm, I can at least relate to three of those categories of what I saw on TV, and rather than saying, that's not me, I'd, I think perhaps if we're getting to the heart of the issue, I would say, how, how do I see me up there with what we saw a few weeks ago? Um, so there's this, I don't know what these social pressures are for us, but I think Jesus is trying to get to that inside, you know, who are you really looking to impress? Who are you looking to, um, where is your heart? Right now, and again, the idea isn't just to be secretive. Yeah, I, you know, I've heard people say, I, you know, they they only give anonymously to the church because they don't want to be recognized because of this. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. But that's not really what Jesus is getting at. It's not about being secretive. Secretive is sort of an antidote to this if it's a problem. The real issue is who are we trying to impress with our actions. And so what we're going to talk about later in those breakout rooms is how do we see that? How does this come out in our world right now? Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, parenting, community involvement, um, pressure online to see or be a certain way or to speak up on a certain issue. Um, uh, all of these things. 
Um, and so at issue is not giving, it's just uh, doing something or being secretive. It's about um, where our heart is focused. Is it focused towards devotion to God or is it focused on um, making it look like we're doing the things we should be doing um, in order to gain uh, recognition from others? So Jesus goes on to talk about prayer, and I'll just read it. Uh, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. Uh, I tell you the truth that this is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in heaven. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. And then he goes into the, the, the Lord's Prayer. Now, a lot long ago, we, already, we, did a, we did a series on the Lord's Prayer. So um, you can scroll through our sermons online and look at those to get a more in-depth look. But what I love about this, the one thing I want to draw our attention to, is that as we look at the Lord's Prayer, what we get um, is uh, not so much a you know, pray exactly these words, which is very helpful. Uh, it's very good to do. Um, but it's the content. The, the first part of the prayer is all about God, right? And, you know, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, may your kingdom come soon, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's all about God and looking Godward. And really all those petitions are saying the same thing, is that we want to recognize the reality of God. We want to see the reality of God and God's kingdom um, in real, concrete ways in the world. And then as it turns and it talks about others. You know, give us today the food we need and caring for practical things. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so we have this very people-focused, um, practical needs married together with the idea that God, um, God's reality, God, the reality of God is seen and heard and felt in this world. And I love that because I think that this is at the heart of what Jesus is getting at. And in fact, this is at the heart. This is, in fact, he goes into the section on prayer. And in this section, this prayer is at the heart of that section. And the section on prayer is at the heart of this larger section of personal religious practice. And this section of personal religious practice is at the heart of this whole sermon. This is at the center of the center of the center of this whole sermon that Jesus is doing. And I would, I guess, uh, scholars would argue that, you know, the theology that comes through in the, in the prayer is at the heart of the book of Matthew as well. And it's that you see in this prayer that we are a community. We're, we're not going to, we're, we're praying for each other. We're caring for each other. We're praying that uh, during times of trial, that we are not led away from this community, this kingdom that God is at the heart of, that, that God is a reality, um, that's at the heart of it. That's at the heart of this whole thing. That was at the heart of last week. That's at the heart of the Beatitudes. That's at the heart of the prayer, is that the reality of God is seen in very practical ways. Um, and I love it. This prayer ties everything together. Um and he says, he closes that section of prayer with this shocking statement. It says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I think that what's going on here is that the reality of this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth, 
is not going to be a reality if we're not living into it. Which means we got to deal with anger. We got to deal with lust. We've got to deal with our attitudes and who we're really trying to please um, with our religious practice. And then we're going to see this marrying together of the, the reality of the kingdom and our practical and our living lives. And we're going to feel like we've returned home. We're going to be home from exile, that the community is going to be real, that we can be vulnerable and open and loving with one another. And then he closes with fasting. He says, when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair. If you have hair, comb your hair. Wash your face, then no one will notice that you are fasting, except your father who knows what you do in private. And your father who sees everything will reward you. And so he closes. Don't store up treasures on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasure. A lot of scholars have wondered, where does this section fall? But everything that Jesus has been talking about has to do with reward and how you're seen. And so now he's talking about treasure. And it, and it, goes, to, it goes with this section to wrap it up. Don't store up your treasures in heaven. Because the admiration of people is fickle and fleeting. It's not going to last. Don't store up your treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And so um, it's probably worth trying to figure out what the opposite is. Imagine a world where there's no murder, a world where there's no murder at all. But anger is unchecked. That's not the world we're trying to we're trying to live into. That's not what Jesus is about. Imagine a world where you know marriages always last. There's no divorce. There's no no one's cheated on. No one ever cheats on everyone. But lust never gets dealt with. Imagine a world where uh, punishment. Where someone does something wrong and the punishment is exactly meets the, the crime. If you steal $1,000 worth of goods, you have to pay $1,000. If you do this thing to that person, the same thing happens to you. Exactly. The punishment is exactly fits the crime. That is not the world that Jesus is painting for us. That's not the kingdom that he's painting for us. Imagine a world where the poor are given to you. Here's the thing, is that these people are doing their religious practice, and they're giving to the poor. Jesus isn't saying that that's wrong. That's good. The issue is their motivation. Imagine a world where the poor are given so much charity, but the donors are all praised, and, and the religious people are celebrated. And that's where we see all the, you know, all the news stories, is just how good this person was and how good that person was. That's not the world that Jesus is uh, carving, or that's not the vision Jesus has for us. Now, just to wrap up, I haven't touched on this, 
But there's something that shows up throughout this whole time. And I don't know if you guys caught the repetition here. Three ideas. First of all, the use of the term father happens 17 times in this sermon. Ten times are in this section that we just read. And what we keep also hearing is that God sees us. And what we also hear is that God rewards. It's over and over. It's like a broken record. God sees you. And part of it, I think with this, when we talk about our internal motivations, we think that's not good news. I don't want to be seen there. I don't want that to be seen. But with Jesus, it's good news because God sees, God loves, and God gives. And that's, that's, the, that's the theme that comes out all the time through this, this section. It's over and over and over and over. God sees you. God loves you and God gives, right? God is a father, that idea of father, which I don't feel completely comfortable with the idea of father. I think what they're getting at in this text is 2,000 years old, is that God is a loving parent. God is beyond gender. God is a loving parent, a parent who cares for you, who loves you, who wants good for you. God sees, God loves and God gives. And there's this idea of reward. And I think that we're a little bit, we feel a little bit hands off. Like, oh, we don't want to think about reward. That just seems cheap. And it's like, no, God wants something for us. There is a reward there. And God sees that. And so it may feel like bad news that God can see all the yuck in my heart at times. But that's good news. Because God loves us. And God wants something good for us. That's good news. You know, I think of the story of Hagar. I wrote my thesis on the story of Hagar. And there's this scene where, uh, in Genesis 16, where uh, Sarah, in a desire for status, can't get, she can't have kids. And in that world, that's, that's a big deal with status. And, and, um, she gives her husband her, her slave, Hagar, who's an Egyptian slave. Hagar gets pregnant. Hagar has all this status. And things aren't going the way Sarah planned. And so Hagar's abused and she's kicked out of the house, which again is that's, that's, that's a sentence of destitute poverty. She's in the desert. She and her baby are probably not going to live, and God sees her. God sees her. And she's the first and only woman, she's the only woman to attribute a name to God, and the, God, and the name is God sees. God sees me. And so in this sermon, Jesus is over and over and over and over again, he's saying God sees you. In a world where religious practice is the cultural norm, where it's outside, very different from our world, we have our own norms, but he says, God sees you. So we've got to deal with the anger and the lust, and we've got to deal with real, true motivation in our religious practice, that this is about connection with God, connection with others on a real, true level with God and others. And, um, and that's what he's trying to get that, at that heart level. But I love that. God sees, God loves, God rewards, God gives. He has something for us.